Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at Political underscore Beats. Subscribe to our feed for new episodes through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn, or go right to nationalreview.com. Click on Podcasts, find us and all the other five at our podcasts. Listen, enjoy, share them, and please leave reviews. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? Well, I, I've kind of come to the belief that it's high time that we took a stand and shook up the views of the common man, Scott. So as this love train rides from coast to coast, it's the podcasters who you end up loving the most. Yes, that we hope so, at least. We hope so. At Esoteric CD on Twitter for Jeff. And we welcome in our guest for today's program, longtime blogger so long they were called weblogs way back when, and he was there. Currently a writer and editor at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. You can find him on Twitter at Sean Hackbarth, and that's his name. Sean Hackbarth, welcome on to Political Beats. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. We appreciate you making some time for us to talk about your your chosen band. And uh, before we get to that band and a little information about them, we ask about you. Tell us about uh, how long ago you started blogging and working your way into this political ecosystem. Uh, I started, I set something up on this little site called, a free site called Angel Fire in 1999. And I just had the uh, the writing itch and I just jumped into it and I haven't really stopped since. So Holy Christ, I have to interrupt you, Sean, but you just made an Angel Fire reference in twenty nineteen. I'm just yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Twenty I, years. Twenty years I, it's been I was actually sad when they shut down Google uh GeoCities. <laughs> I I'm always surprised that you didn't have your um oh gosh, what was that other really like goofy uh fan site place? Uh, I want to call, uh, you know what? I can't even remember it, but man, the early nineties and early late nineties and early two thousands <laughs> for blogs. Sorry to interrupt, but like you just, you just blasted me back to the past. Glad to, glad to help. <laughs> glad to make you feel old. Uh, cause I do it to myself every day. Uh, so yeah, I've been writing about politics and then off for, through all this time. And eventually I turned that into a, a professional sort of gig. Uh, in 2007, I uh, moved to Washington, D.C. to work on the late uh, Senator Fred Thompson's presidential campaign. Uh, as we can see in uh, political history, that turned out really well. Uh, <laughs> then, I, then, I went, then I worked, uh, worked in the Senate for uh, Lamar Alexander for a couple of years. And being a D.C. political person, I dabbled in political consulting for a little bit. Uh, and then eventually uh, the U.S. Chamber found me and uh, made me a professional writer, and I've been there since uh, 2011. And now you join us here today on Political Beach to talk about uh, Tears for Fears, uh, a band that I, I don't know, maybe some people think of them more of, uh, of I don't want to say one-hit wonders, but maybe one-album wonders, but a uh, more thorough career, which we'll examine today on the old program. Uh, Sean, give you back the floor. Tell us why you love Tears for Fears, how you got into them, and why anyone else should care about this music that they made. Well, you made a point that they could be considered a one-hit wonder or one-album wonder, but even even if you just look at that one album, it's one of those albums and sounds that defined an entire decade of music. Uh, you start, you put, you play one of their hits from then, and you just know where it came from, you know what decade, and uh, you just got. And if you grew up then during that time, like I did, you you get those same same fuzzy music vibes 
that you did. It had it had everything. They had they had music videos. They had a little bit of politics in their in their songs, which which was really part of the scene scene then. Uh, you had you had the synths, which for good or bad, that's part of the eighties. And uh, they 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 still had Tears for Fears had pop songs with that actually included guitar solos. So that was kind of a a, a different thing. I mean, the thing unique for that for that time, and you just don't hear a lot of that in the pop music anymore. Uh, how did I get into this? Uh, Tears for Fears was probably the first band I ever really just went gaga over. I was about <laughs> I was ten year ten years old, so it was like. Let's see, 1985, 10-year-old Sean is finally getting into music, and then I hear on the radio those first chords, that, that first uh, strumming, uh, those notes from uh, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, and I was completely hooked with that song. song you had to record it on the radio so i had my boom box and my blank cassette <laughs> tape and i always tried to time it just right so i got the the cleanest copy off the radio with the least amount of dj talking or or any other uh any other song getting in getting into it <laughs> and just i put it together so i could start building my mixes and things like that uh then my birthday came and my parents were nice enough to actually get me songs from the big chair and this was the this was probably one of the first new albums I ever got. I think I picked up some some other music and at like garage sales and stuff like that. But this was this was like serious for me. Uh, I was really excited about this. It was it just uh, I usually got maybe like one or two gifts for my birthday, but I was just happy if like I just got this album. I was going to be I was just going to be set. That's probably, that's the only thing I remember. So I get the I get the cassette and I. Th- think this was before they had that awful that awful plastic packaging where you had to like oh, print. Yeah. you had to get scissors and and crowbars and all that stuff so but i if i didn't i found a way out of, i found a way to crack that open and then i unwrapped it popped it in the cassette and listened to shout and then the next song comes on and i didn't recognize it so i quickly fast forward to <laughs> everybody wants to rule the world and after that i probably went back to shout and then mm-hmm. that's that's probably when i started listening to the whole thing and i just it's just it was a it like i said it was like the first band i ever really got into and it just felt like that that was me at that moment when i just got into music I gotta say that I have a, a fairly similar experience uh, to Sean's. I, I was um, 
I, I, I don't know. I was uh, about five years younger than him. So I was born in 1980. So like, when did I first encounter Tears for Fears? I was probably like six years old or something like that. So like 1986 or thereabouts, you know, you turn on the radio, you're driving with your dad in the car on the radio, or you're watching your dad's, you know, taped videos off of you know, you know friday night music videos on abc and what do you hear you hear everybody wants to rule the world and then you see head over heels and i cannot actually tell you or i can tell you but i don't know if i can fully convey the emotional impact that a song like head over heels had on me as a young child um i i tried to explain it uh couple days ago on twitter but it was like that feeling of recognition where you see someone you see these musicians and, and you look at them if you've seen the head over heels music video um it's 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 rowan Orzabal and he's like he looks completely nerdy kurt smith looks hugely nerdy giant like giant glasses um and uh he's walking with like a stack of books into a library trying to flirt with like the sexy librarian uh and failing and i just thought oh my god these are nerds these are nerds and they're making nerd music and they speak to me because i know deep in my heart that i'm a nerd too and it was like that millhouse moment from the simpsons where he meets his doppelganger and he's like wait you're just like me and like this is what it feels like when doves cry i embraced tears for fears because i thought finally here is a group that is like oh my gosh they're me they're me as i know i am going to eventually be even when i was like six seven eight years old i was like yeah i'm bookish i'm like into trivia i'm kind of like distant from the world i saw this band making this music is so soaring and so soulful and, and you know with with such deep emotional import but also kind of unapologetically like yeah you know what we're not cool we'll never be cool we're just good at what we do and that was where tears for fears made their first impression upon me make their last impression upon me though with that because i remember the next time that they they, they came into my mind wasn't with uh, sowing the seeds of love in 1989 which actually i had passed over it was with elemental i heard break it down again the song on the radio i think it was don and mike in, in washington dc wjfk they were like hyping this song they, they were 
radio talk show hosts. They weren't DJs at that point. They were like, man, we heard the song. It's really great. I was like, man, that is a great song. So I insisted that my parents go out and get the album for me. And I listened to it, Elemental. Um, and I was like, this is a fantastic album. I wore that album down to a groove because my disc man had like like burst a spring and so like one of the panels on the corner came up and so every time you would spin the cd it actually carved a groove <laughs> into the end of the cd which means the last two songs on the album i can never hear because there's just this big circular groove on them that was ripped into it by my disc man that's how often i played that album oh I, man I think, that, that's awful because the last song goodbye the, song is so good uh, I'm, yeah good night song well you, the last two songs are great but the point about this group is that I have since come back to them, gone through all of their records, because you can't have a, a band make that much of an impression upon you as a child and not you know, want to return to them and find out whether, like, well, is the, does the rest of the work hold up? And the kind of almost comically weird thing is that during the 80s, their commercial heyday, some of that work doesn't hold up, actually. Uh, and then when they became much more obscure in the 90s and then in the 2000s that works actually quite amazing this is one of the weirdest uh, not the weirdest actually it is kind of predictable it reminds me of another group who i'm going to reference in a second here where uh the more obscure they became uh the better the music got uh even though their greatest hits from the 80s are indelible and, and are just legendary and kind of set the tone. I, I even talked in our covers episode about we, I, I, we singled out Donnie Darko as one of my favorite soundtracks. And I talked about how Head Over Heels captures the, like, the feeling of what the 80s was like mm. for me better than any other song from that era, even though there are bands that I like more than Tears from Fears from the 80s, like, say, Echo and the Bunnymen, also on the Donnie Darko soundtrack, for that matter. Um, but this group continued to be good and i guess you know when you say it's a group who are they it it's basically it's roland orzabal and kurt smith two british guys from i think like, like portsmouth portsmouth england um uh but it's i i always have thought you know it's really orzabal's band he was the lead songwriter he's the lead singer you know he's kind of you know the the maestro who runs the stuff and um this music has an amazing staying power and so i'm glad that even though i laughed with scott back then that like oh we're never going to get to do an episode on tears for fears he was like well you know what he told me off the show he's like you know don't be so sure about that we might actually do an episode on tears for fears one day and i'm so glad to be able to do one uh because what they remind me of and this is the last thing i'll say is that they remind me of an alt history version of talk talk a band that we covered earlier in the history of political beats a uh, band one of my favorite groups from the 80s and early 90s uh, and had a very strange musical evolution from synth pop to this weird sort of ghostly organic music that almost sort of disappeared into itself. Tears for Fears took a similar route except somewhere along the way they diverged on that path. You know, two roads in a, in a snowy wood. It's like stopping by the woods on a snowy evening. You know, two, two roads diverged. And uh, what, did, uh, what did Tears for Fears do? They decided to remain with songcraft and with pop 
kind of you know pop structure and with you know that desire for perfection in the pop form and i think it has served them well throughout their entire career we don't know if this is the end of their career but they haven't put out an album since 2004 <laughs> so Good you know it, it's fair to say that they, this is a coda um but it, it's a surprisingly strong discography And I agree, but we do. I, I was I thought of talk talk uh, a lot as as I was diving back through this discography of Tears for Fears. We might flesh that out a bit more too as we head through some of the albums. But uh, uh, definitely a, a, a touchstone, and, and uh, as Jeff said, kind of a parallel uh, band uh, or, or a perpendicular band. They went a different way. Uh, but both you guys mentioned songs from the Big Chair as a touchstone. But we have to start with their debut album first, of course, which was what about a year, year and a half previous to that in 1983 called The Hurting. And uh, I don't know if a album cover has ever been so literal, right? Uh, a, a child... You it's know, a tiny child kind of sitting, scrunched like, down, crying with head his, in hands. head to his knees. Oh, it's so sad. <laughs> uh, so I don't know if either of you are amateur psychologists, but do, we need to discuss, I suppose, this, this idea, the psychological idea of childhood pain and, uh, and sort of getting it out as an adult and how childhood pain influences you as an adult. Anyone want to take that angle here? Well, I mean, okay, first, I'll just say this. Like, you, you, you can't discuss the hurting or, or songs from the big chair, for that matter. In yeah. fact, you can't discuss most of Tears for Fears' stuff without discussing, like, Arthur Janov and, like, Primal Scream and Primal Scream Therapy. Of course, uh, John Lennon, uh, famously, in his first album, solo album after leaving the Beatles, did John Lennon Plastic Ono Band, which he did under the influence of Janoff. And, you know, it was, you know, like, you know, it opens with, like, Mother. You know, if, if you guys know that song, Mother, you know, you, you had me, but I never had you. It's just like, <laughs> ah! It's like a really painful song. Of course, he released it as a single because he was perverse like that. Um, it... it this is an updated version of that. It's basically them recycling all of their. They met the Smith and Orzabal met when they were I guess ten years old or something like that. So like they knew each other from a really young age. They both had really crappy childhoods apparently, um, but you know who knows? I mean I'm sure that people have had worse than them. Uh, and then they started like you know like some synth pop band, and then they departed that, and then they started Tears for Fears, and their idea was to do an album based primarily around the pain of you know childhood heartbreak and 
that's why like all these songs are like ideas as opiates memories fade suffer the children watch me bleed i wish they wouldn't have sold out like that you know going for the the big bucks and the airplay it's not exactly subtle and then you know know, the the thing about the hurting is it's actually for a synth pop album and this is strictly in that new romantic synth pop phase it's it's very much the same as talk talk's first album the party's over um it's really i think it's a better album than the party's over and of course the number one reason why it's a better album than that is that it has one of the greatest and most sort of emblematic synth pop early 80s songs of all time which is mad world everybody knows mad world you you don't you don't have to like tears for fears but you know when you hear all around me are familiar faces you're gonna say oh i like that song you're gonna bob your head you're gonna bob your head because that song is irresistible all around me a lot of the rest of this album does also hold up but i don't think it's you know anywhere close to their greatest go ahead sean i agree uh, with a lot of that it was i came upon this when i think i heard about the, i saw the hurting album cover i think in an old best buy flyer on like an, on, 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 in a sunday newspaper i'm going oh great this is new tears for fears and i went out and got it and i found out discovered it was their first album and it was definitely a, a different a different vibe than uh, songs from the big chair. Uh, <laughs> it was moody, monotone. It, it it did capture that that 70s UK sound with the minimal thing. I kind of describe it like a little bit of Ultravox meets Joy Division. Yeah. And it ended up being the dreariest pop album I I can recall. I mean, talk about Mad World. We were that the line, the dreams in which I'm dying are the best I've ever had, <laughs> and it was a pop hit. At least in the UK. I mean, not only was it a pop hit, but you know, it, it was also remade uh, by Gary Jules. Uh, you know, of course, that's the one that's on the Donnie Darko soundtrack. It went to number one in the United Kingdom again back in like 2003, and it's like now like one of those weird Christmas singles in England, which makes no sense to me because like what uh, what's the last thing you want to think of? You know, when it's like you know you know Yule season. Uh, yeah, it's a mad mad world. Um, I love that song, but I also think that a lot of this other stuff is really good for synth. It, it's much more um, 
course, because you're using syndromes, you're using sequencers, you're using, uh, you know, you know, very kind of regimented structures. Mm-hmm. There's nothing organic about the music, but the music itself, the songs are well written. You know, the other one I really, really like is uh, their first single, I think. It's called Suffer the Children. Uh, which again, just you know, we, we, right there, you know, in the title, it's a nasty, nasty song. But uh, you know, it's like you know, it's about the idea that, like when your kids are born innocent and then they're corrupted, they're corrupted by life, they're corrupted by you know their parents by being brought up in the world. And it's like dark, and this is by the way one of the reasons why uh, this band was hated when they first came out. I think that's funny that that Tears for Fears was uh, both commercially successful and critically loathed in their early years. Uh, I I was talking to a friend of mine who was British and who was like older than me. And he was like a kid back then in 1983. He's like, you don't understand how much everyone hated Tears for Fears when they first came out because of their success. He said, like, those guys, uh, he didn't use this word, but I will. Those guys both had backpfeifengesicht which is the German phrase for a face that begs for a fist. Uh, <laughs> th- th- you know, that smug face that you just want to punch. <laughs> Both Kurt Smith and Roland Orsbaugh, that looked like, God, you punks, you smug punks. I don't like you at all. Ah, there's something about the way they come off kind of whinging endlessly about their childhoods that set people off. But I do think that the music is still really good. I think they're like, you know, they're – Four singles on this album. There's Mad World, Pale Shelter, Suffer the Children, Change. All those are pretty good tunes. I like Pale Shelter an awful lot from this album, which, which um, I think holds up pretty well. It's it's it certainly has uh, the sound you'd expect from an album released around 1983, the, the moody electronics, um, but it still sounds pretty good today. Pale Shelter is one where where Smith and Orzabal trade off vocals and the chorus, which I, I like very much.
and I don't know if this is because we just did a whole episode on them, but Change, I had almost a, a Roxy Music vibe yeah. from it. This thick, thumping bass. I think there's a marimba on it, a slightly exotic percussion. Um, it's a good track. I, I, I like Watch Me Bleed, too. One of the guitar-based songs on the album, you actually hear the, the, the jangle of the acoustic guitar at times, but matched with these very dour uh, piano chords and, and, of course, downer of the lyrics, uh, Watch Me Bleed Forever. But uh, but by and large, this is a very good uh, album from 1983. And, and as much as the, the, the subject matter was perhaps difficult, I mean, it was serious matters here, you know, pain and, and hurt uh, of, of a child and how it affects uh, the adult eventually. But uh, the songs themselves, I think, hold up pretty darn well. I think the idea that, that people rebelled against critically, it was like, what right do 20-year-olds have sure. to sing about all of this pain and agony and suffering? What have you seen of the world, you kids? Um, and, you know, you know, I, I kind of understand the argument because, like, yeah, like you think life is tough. Well, just wait out until you get out in the real world and you have to go work in a coal mine or something like that. Like, you're going to find that life is even harder than you suspected. But, yeah, uh, the, the album does hold up. And, uh, of course, the thing about it is that, you know, what you thought about this album is going to completely change once you get to their next album. But before I move on to that, Sean, do you have anything left to add? Well, I think you kind of you you hint at the uh, the reaction that they that they got, and also just the sheer audacity of these two of these two uh, musicians doing what they did. And I think you kind of see that they had to take no care. They just they just didn't care. They just wanted to make the music. I think they wanted to do. And you started, and they that gave them the freedom to go in different directions and really show off their their skills. Uh, Suffer the children is a, is a is a good song, and that's where you start seeing those layers. That they that they build up with instruments and, and vocals, and you, you start to see that makes the song bigger. And then you start to see, that's and you, that's you're going to get it from that song. You get the hint of <laughs> what's going to be happening on 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 their on their later albums. Uh, a song I, I we we haven't talked about yet is the prisoner. I think it's uh, very ahead of its time in a way. Uh, it's got these loops and cacophony and just uh, kind of. I mean, if you aren't I mean, compared to their other songs, it, it, it's more like noise and stuff. But I listened to that and I thought, I was thinking, you put a couple, of, a bunch of guitars, some more production and noise, and add 10 years, and I think it's Nine Inch Nails. I think uh, they were they were innovating. Uh, they were they wanted to make the music they did, and because of their talent and their songwriting ability, they made some hits, and they could keep on doing what they wanted to do. Now, here's the funny thing about Tears for Fears: their greatest critical zenith was during the 1980s, and yet they had 
the snailest of all snails paces of work output they only put out three albums during the 1980s one in 1983 one in 1985 and then boo four years go by and they put out one in 1989 so they really took their sweet ass time putting albums together and you understand why they did it though when you see what comes next there was a there was an intervening single called The Way You Are, which about the less said, the better. It's not a good song, in my opinion. They don't like it either. But uh, I might be the only one that likes it. What'd you say? I might be the only one that likes it then. Well, then tell, tell me about it. Talk to me about The Way You Are. No, see, I, I didn't, I, I'm glad I didn't just pass over it unremarked. Well, I was gonna actually gonna wait because it's part of that that uh, that uh, one of their B side sets with albums that I think is really Section good. Nine, Marshall and Lunatic, right? Yeah, well, I mean, I but this it. is where it comes. Tell, talk to us about yeah, it now. Yeah, it's it, it, it's got that it's it's kind of bouncy and and it's definitely uh, it's definitely more it, it's not the moody that moody vibe of the hurting and but it, it, it's it's it, it's like it's like I want to joke, but does anybody remember American Bandstand? Sure, of course. Okay, so you got uh, Clark. Yeah, it's Dick got Clark. it's got a good beat, and you can dance to it. Exactly. I give it a I give it an eighty two. Uh, <laughs> is, is it the best song they ever did? No, but it's a it, it's a nice little uh, palate cleanser. It's something that you can certainly put in a playlist, and and you don't. Re- it's definitely not something that it comes into your uh, into your shuffle on your on your iPod, and then you just want to like skip it. Like I can listen to that. And I can hum it, and I'm humming it in my head right now. So. But I'll tell you, half of the planet who is our age can probably still hum half of the songs on their next <laughs> album, which is 1985 Songs from the Big Chair. Now, the title, I, I had to actually look this up. I did not know it. I mean, I had this album when I was like eight years old, right? But I never knew that it was based on Sybil, which is a, a TV movie that I had watched about like some some woman with like you know apparently like multiple personality disorder she had 39 personalities or something like that and like you know the only time she ever felt safe was she was sitting in her therapist's chair the big chair so this is like songs from the big chair and so kurt smith said like yeah you know this is because we're in a position of safety because we know we we've put out a, one of the best damn albums you're ever gonna hear in this your words decade. can't hurt us anymore Right, no one can hurt us now because listen, we have an album that that has like three of the most ubiquitous songs of the entire decade, and they're all fantastic. I will say this just as an opener about songs from the Big Chair. I've already talked about two of them. I will talk about uh, the song "Shout," which I used to hate. 
I thought to myself, I didn't like this song. When I heard it in the 80s and the 90s, I thought it was too sort of, you know, metronomic, too robotic. Um, and I thought, eh, you know, it's, it's I don't like this it's kind of goofy synth pop stuff. It doesn't really do it for me. And also I thought it was too long because it is like six and a half yes. minutes long. Yes. Um, and then I came back to it again when I was listening to it in the run up to the show. You know, I knew the song, obviously, but then I was like re-hearing it for the first time in like must have been a decade. Um, and I was like, wait, this is actually really, really great. <laughs> it's like, this is, no wonder this became a number one hit single. <laughs> this is their first number one hit single. This went to number one in the American charts. This album went to number one in the American charts. Out of nowhere, this British band, who everybody in Britain hated, conquered America. I guess that probably made everybody in Britain hate them even more because like how dare they do that when all these other wonderful and underappreciated bands failed to do so. But the thing about songs from the big chair is that I, you can't really tell me that there's anything on this album that's bad. I, I think that the, the funniest thing about this album is that you see where Orzabal's heart really lies he wants to be like a lounge piano jazz singer because you hear it on songs like Working Hour and on I Believe and yes, on Listen, definitely. and you're going to hear that a heck of a lot more on uh, Seeds of Love. But like, you know, a, those are like sort of the album tracks. They're all actually really good, I think. I Believe in particular is a, is a wonderful song. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the, I mean, the hit singles, you guys take them away. I, you can't deny any of the three. I mean, you really can't. And they're both good. Uh, they're both great in their own way. Uh, like Jeff, uh, of the three, I would probably say like Shout was the one that resonated with me least. But listening back to it multiple times in preparation, man, there's a lot happening there. The way that everything keeps getting added and added and layered and layered. And yet all these sounds and all these instruments and synths and samples and live drums and drum machine. It doesn't collapse upon itself. It's really well-built, well-structured. It sounds gigantic, and especially in that the, the chorus, the, the simple sing-along chorus. But it's all there. I, I love that, that kind of low bass synth that emerges during the chorus, which is fantastic. And then you go to Head Over Heels, uh, w- which has almost more of an R&B feel, but it's still a great, great pop song. Um, that's a great one, and I'll spend just a minute on, on Everybody Wants to Rule the World, which might be my favorite of the three. It's one of the best singles of the 80s in my mind, uh, brought back by Dennis Miller to the theme for Dennis Miller Live on HBO, which I was a big fan of, so it helped uh, helped uh, kind of make that connection there. One of the great things about Everybody Wants to Rule the World is 
there, there's like there's something in this song for everybody. There, there, it's a universal appeal. You like guitar rock. You like pop sweetness. You like uh, you know power chords. Uh, the lyrics too, and you know the, the longer they'd go, the more kind of obtuse the lyrics would get from Tears for Fears. This one, I, I think, are fairly straightforward, but they're but there's something in there for everyone. If if you want to look at it as like an environmental song, there's songs about you know the, the planet. You want to look at it about a song about power. There's songs about that. My, my favorite couplet is the uh, "I can't stand this indecision married with a lack of vision," which is which is a little bit later in the song. Um, but you can kind of read into it what you will, uh, lyric-wise. And when you think it's done, there's always a bit more. They're coming back for more. It's not not necessarily a false ending, but there's all these times when they could just fade out. But no, there's more of Everybody Wants to Rule the World. is really, really good on Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Um, I like The Working Hour, uh, second track on the album. Reminds me a lot after that kind of very 80s-esque 80s sax intro. Once they get into the meat of the song, it reminded me a lot of, uh, it reminds me a lot of Alive and Kicking from Simple Minds. And I went and looked and, and uh, Alive and Kicking was produced by Bob Clear Mountain and Jimmy Iovine. You want a hit song, those are two guys to go to to produce a track, uh, and the fact that the guys they, who like do like the Rolling Stones yeah. and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Uh, right? The fact that they got that same sort of sound, at least in my mind, on, on the Working Hour speaks to how well this album is produced by by Chris Hughes, who produced the first album and produces here again. Uh, you know, eight tracks, and, and as Jeff said, you can you can sing every word to at least three of them, probably four, maybe five. I was talking to Brad Berzer too, who did our Rush episode, and he's a giant Tears for Fears song, uh, fan. He argues he argues that Songs from the Big Chair is one of the handful five best uh, pop rock albums ever made. He puts it up there. Like he's, I think his exact words to me were almost as good as Pet Sounds. So. 
uh, high praise from him. I, I wouldn't put it quite that that high, but it's 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 the uh, it's a clear high watermark early in the career for Tears for Fears. I definitely have to say, follow this up on Everybody Wants the Rule of the World, I would say is the second best song from the 80s. The number one song being Don Henley's Boys of Summer. No! Yes. Oh, <laughs> I mean, that's not a bad song. but It's no. a really good song. It's it's one of those, it, both both those songs, when you play, when I hear them, it is the 1980s. It's Don't just, look back, okay. Sean. You can never look back. Exactly. <laughs> Out on the road today with a deadhead. Never mind. But anyway, you <laughs> look... But Scott makes his point. Like there is so many the, the things about these pop songs. One on the album, a lot of these things go for six and a half minutes. And mm-hmm. obviously on the radio, there's radio edits and stuff. But even even like Shout goes for like almost six minutes, and it doesn't. I just listen to it over a few times, and it doesn't get boring. There's so many things that happen. There's there's layers and keyboards, and then there's that 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 funky that funky bass bass line in the middle and then 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 you get a guitar solo and then kids kids shout, shouting and it, i mean this is just <laughs> it just builds up and up and then you just want to go yes shout uh same thing for everybody wants to rule the world except that's a little shorter and tighter uh there's some really good guitar work there i think i think roland or the ball can is a is ne- is probably not appreciated for his guitar work that is such an efficient guitar solo, mm-hmm. and, and it comes out of nowhere because you think, as as Scott said, like you think the song's over, and then all of a sudden, boom! You know, like you know, you have this this great little guitar solo. It's you know, it's not like you know, Slash from Guns N' Roses, but it's just great <laughs> comping on chords, just chords. And he, they, it's structured in such a way that they drop that in there, and you don't feel like, like, oh, we're gonna keep on going for a while. So, it, it, it just, it's very, it's, it's all structured really well. I do have to say, uh, "Head Over Heels" is another wonderful song. And, uh, I, I think anybody at that time when that song came out, especially if you're, if you're a guy, you just could relate to that. I, that, that was about the time I think I discovered my first crush on a girl. And yeah. That, that song helped me figure it out. Yeah, figure totally, out, like, head totally. Over, I know what head over heels actually means. And it's, it's not just sentimental. It's just really a, a good song because it's just like, like the other hits. They just, there's a new part that they just add a, another layer, some vocals, maybe some different, some, some flourishes of, of a keyboard or something. Then the video was 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 was, I mean the nerd they were nerdy but also kind of weird because he had that first uh, that first keyboard keyboard part and and the, and the the keyboard is just playing the keyboard with one finger and I was watching that and I was going like could that actually be done and I actually I think I went to went to some store and was fooling around with Casio <laughs> keyboards and I could never get that. So I'm sure it was probably not real. Yeah, I don't. I, I think I think it was just miming for the cameras, right? Oh yeah, but it was it just it was it it fits that whole MTV vibe. Like you want to have a good video and stuff like that. Uh, a song we haven't talked about yet is uh, is I think it's at the end of side one. It's Mother's Talk. Yeah, uh, that's got a. It nice was it was the single before the album came out. Yeah, but the that was yeah I think that was the album the one that was kind of like the album there's so many thing about it is they had so many different edits and versions and i think they were kind of retooling things but the version of mother's talk you want to find is the u.s mix because they add even more background vocals uh some more keyboards they just make it sound bigger almost like 
you want to hear this hear this song in a, in, a, in a big arena. It had some, but the problem with it on the album version has is has this great bass line at the end, and you're just going and going and grooving, and that's just not on the U.S. mix. But so you got to find a way. Somebody, some producer is going to have to smash those two together to make the perfect version of Mother's Talk, and I will spend money on it. I asked my parents to buy me songs from the big chair when I was, I guess, probably at that point, eight years old or something like that. And so, because I'd seen Head Over Heels and Everybody Wants to Rule the World, and I'd heard Shout on the radio. Uh, and when I finally got the CD, I was stunned when I got to the second half of the album, the second side of the album, to find out that all these songs were actually like a sidelong suite. They were all segued together. It begins with I Believe. Which I think is a really kind of a really good underrated song. They did like a re-recorded version, releases a single. It's like I think a live take. It's not as good as the original. The original studio version is the one to keep. It's a very Robert Wyatt influenced kind of a song. Robert Wyatt, drummer and vocalist from Soft Machine, who ended up having kind of a after he uh, you know you know had his spine fractured and uh, he ended up becoming a keyboardist. Um, but then you have Broken. And then it goes into Head Over Heels. And the thing is, when I first heard Broken, which is this very loud, angry guitar song, and it's really good. Uh, you know, broken, we are broken. And all of a sudden, you hear, like, in the background, I can't remember. I can't tell you how my, my, my dumb child mind was blown when I heard suddenly, do, 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 do. I was like, is that, is, it's like, you know, by God, is that the head over heels music I hear? Like, like that wrestling announcer would say. Jim uh, Ross. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's like, is that the head over heels music? And I'm like, oh no, we're heading into this, this, this giant medley. And indeed, it segues right into head over heels.
I've already talked about how much this song meant to me as a child, but I just need to emphasize again, this is, to me, the song that defines the 1980s in all of the best possible ways. You can think of songs that define it in a bad way, like, you know, Buster Poindexter's feeling hot, 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 <laughs> right? The stuff we'd prefer to forget, too legit to quit, right? No. That, that's a 90s is, song, by the way. Oh, technically, it's 1990, I guess. <laughs> I guess. Okay, fine. Okay, thank you for... Nevertheless, you know, we should forget it. Thank you for nickel and diming me there, Scott. <laughs> but the point is, is that Head Over Heels is everything that was great about the 80s sound and those giant, massive piano keys that lead into that, you know, the guitar just like wailing in the background and then these great vocals. And then I've always considered... Every generation, every decade has its Hey Jude moment. Like Hey Jude, you know, at the end of Hey Jude, you know, in 1968, it's the na, 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 na. Uh, and then in the 1970s, you could choose a couple of ones. But for me, the 1980s equivalent of that is when he goes, na, 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 and that just beautiful chorale of them singing that wonderful melodic line, uh, it, it transported me as a child. And even now, 39 years old, so many years on from that, I am carried back to what it felt like to be young, awkward, weird, strange, intellectual, uh, you know, and, and, you know, sort of out of sorts with the rest of the world, but fascinated by music. I heard that song and I suddenly felt like I belong. that hey you trick a few more times in their career we might talk uh, about that coming up so a- after uh, after songs from the big chair you want to follow it up quickly strike with the iron's hot but that is not what they did four long years from 1985 through uh, 1989 until the follow-up album from tears for fears that's a that's forever especially back in the 80s when occasionally every year you get a new album or every other year four years for tears for fears i've never heard a good explanation for why it took so long i mean i know they were on tour in like 1986 yeah but like why other than the only hint i'm getting is from from my research and stuff it's like roland was such a perfectionist he was just really it was just he was just slow to worry he just was really a stickler for things but that's the closest i've gotten but yeah, I don't know either. And you get the seeds of love. And um, this is, um, 
I, I, I think it's a weak album, guys, and there are a few highlights, and one, I think, giant highlight, and that's, again, one of the best songs of the 80s in Sowing the Seeds of Love. rest of this album doesn't really work there's a lot of you would be hard pressed to play these songs play these albums to someone who had no idea who tears for fears was they would never think that the songs of the big chair and the seeds of love are essentially this the same band they they would not put two and two together i think very different feel to the seeds of love largely on the album more atmospheric more textures um sowing the seeds of love is is not a par for the course on this album. So in the Siege of Love is this beautiful Beatles uh, pastiche, essentially. You can. It's like out- it's like it's like the way the the Beach Boys put good vibrations onto Smiley Smile, right? Right, right. Yes, yes. That's a <laughs> good, good vibrations. This massive pop masterpiece, <laughs> and then, like, what's the rest of this album? It is not that at all. Um, this is, um, I mean, you you have you know Kurt Smith who did a lot of the singing and still does some backing vocals here, but you have a, a female voice uh, come forward on on the first two tracks. Like, where's Kurt Smith? No, you get it, you get a lot of Adams, not Kurt Smith on the first two songs. Um, you have uh, songs later on that um, I, I think are, are really quite weak uh, toward the second half of the album. I think it holds up very well on the second half. We can talk more at length about sowing the seeds of love because that's when we could spend, spend some time on. But I, 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 Jeff, I think you're on my wavelength here in terms of this album. Uh, it might be, I'd have to maybe think about it a little bit more, my, my least favorite Tears for Fears album. Yeah, I think it actually is their weakest album, which is crazy because like there's these later albums that nobody really knows anything about, but they're better. They're better. Trust me, folks. Yes. Way better. Um, but uh, the thing about this is I would argue that the first half of this album is actually really excellent. I, 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 Woman in Chains, which is the one that where Alita Adams uh, duets with, with Orza Ball, uh, and it was a hit single, too. Uh, I have a, a, like one of those fond childhood memories. Again, Tears for Fears, the man, they played weird roles in my life throughout my life uh <laughs> when i was like a kid with a boom box just just the way sean was talking about i had my little black you know like you know it was on my bedside table with the cassette player and i couldn't sleep i was a little insomniac kid 10 years old i would uh turn on the radio i don't even remember which station it was but like every now and then i'd hear i heard a song you know you know woman in chains woman in chains i was like that's a really beautiful song and it helped me go to sleep so one night when i was you know awake at 2 a.m i creeped downstairs to my kitchen because that's where the phone is right yeah this is the era where nobody has cell phones right i creeped downstairs to my kitchen phone and i called the radio station uh, to, to make a dj request and, and and the woman it was a female dj she was so amused that like a 10 year old was calling to 
your request. <laughs> Tears for Fears is Woman in Chains. <laughs> She's like, you know what? We're going to do that for you. Five minutes later, it's on the air, and I'm asleep like a rock. and I'll never, ever get over that incredibly fond memory that I have. And I do think that it's a beautiful song, but the thing about it is that, again, the thing about uh, people need to understand, like, Alita Adams was this woman who had, you know, was a very talented musician and singer, gone to Hollywood, kind of, you know, not made it in Los Angeles because they wanted her to do disco in the late 70s, and she's like, that's not what I'm about. So they found her when they were doing their songs from the Big Chair Tour in, like, a cocktail lounge, I think in Kansas City, you know, or something like that. And they said, uh, hey, you know what? You're awesome. So, like, like four years later, they're recording the Seeds of Love. They have to go, like, you know, find her contact information, ring her up, and say, "Come to England. We want you to record." <laughs> she ends up being on like half the songs on this record, and she's she's she basically co-sings that song. It, yeah. It's a duet between her and Roland, and it's I think an excellent song, but it's very different than everything that had come before and i also do think that like you know in this modern woke era the activist 2019 uh you know you the, the song is a bit on the nose like woman in chains like so free her but you know what the music kind of triumphs over the sort of ham-fisted lyrical you know do-gooderness of the 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 sentiment i think it's just so wonderful when it and it goes to that middle eight you know it's under my skin but it's out of my hand and then it goes into the so free her so free her that's a beautiful climax to a song and a great way to begin the album i also think bad man's song as again the jazzy cocktail lounge piano guy that or ball seemed to want to be at that time works well
sowing the seeds of love. We're going to put that one off because that is, again, like just stands apart. I also like advice for the young at heart, which is, you know, you know, Kurt Smith's big vocal feature. It's the second half of this album that really lets it down. I don't like much of anything on the second half. Well, uh, the story with that, that, de- that long delay between those two albums meant I had to listen to other things at the time. So uh, during that time, I started moving away from the, from the pop stuff and trying to find something maybe a little edgier. This is, the rut. This is when I discovered uh, hair metal and, and such. I was listening to, I, was, I became a big Def Leppard fan. And, uh, and my friends were always trying to get me to listen to, uh, to the, to, to like, I mean, well, it started with Bon Jovi, then you go to Motley Crue, and then you try to find some heavier stuff. So then, then 1989 comes around, they finally come back with this album. I'm, my head is not in that space when I pop this, <laughs> pop this thing on and I'm going, to say the least. woman in chains. Okay. <laughs> uh, this duet kind of soft thing, uh. I've dubbed this album. This is this is part of their VH1 era. This, yeah. this, the, the, this whole thing was just pr- it, the production and the instrumentation was perfect for when for, for for some people out there who don't know what VH1 is. Before they actually were nothing but reality shows. They actually showed music videos. Yeah, I remember that was my my family wouldn't let me watch MTV. We had to go to a friend's house to watch MTV. We watched VH1. That's yes. that was my household. And VH1 was a lot more, uh, now it's called, I think even then it was called Adult Contemporary. It was a, a little older vibe, and it had, like, the big big ones were, like, Sting, Sting Solo, Phil Collins, and those stuff. And those were, those songs were really produced. They had lots of instruments, lots of people working on them, uh, do lots of different sounds. You had two drums, three guitars. It, it was <laughs> so many different things, and this... You the same the same things going on in, on this album. Uh, Roland decided like I can do anything I want here because you know when you had one of the biggest albums of of, of the eighties, you get to do anything you want. So he he threw in the kitchen sink. I mean, there's saxophones. I mean, you can't have a you can't have a real Tears for Fears album without a saxophone someplace in it. Uh, there was there was a saxophone. There's a harmonica. There were probably marimbas. There's there's little various different types of percussion through it uh and like the other albums they just he they were layered on up and up and uh building up to some interesting uh, interesting points uh uh like i said woman in chains i think builds up very well uh bad man song is uh, is is really interesting uh i enjoy that one uh let's go i mean on the second side i know jeff didn't really like anything on there but i thought you're the knife is a uh, it's all, I don't know how much it sounds. It sounds like it was recorded live, but who knows what all tricks they were using even then, but it had a, it just had a, a, a jam, a jammy feel. And I could, I could picture going on, going to see them live and, and seeing like 15, 20 people on stage with, with, with background singers and everything and just everybody having a, a really good time. And that song just, it's propulsive. It just drives. So Everybody having a great time except the audience. Oh, I had I would have been right there going, yeah.
it just okay. The, the song, the, he, my problem with those songs on the second half of the album is that there's a lot of bombast, right? But it's so formless. There, there's, yeah, there's, yeah. there's, there's no structure. There's the thing that always defined Tears for Feels that, that, that defined Orzabal's songwriting, and it will actually come back in a major way after this. Is like he's actually like a, a real kind of like fascist for good songcraft and structure. And this stuff is just so loose and floaty. You know, there's nothing there. You know, there's there's like a riff here. There's a nice sound there. There's a nice like, – there's a lot of good like little like, you know, like, chunky fun moments on a song like Gear of the Knife. But there's – could you hum it? I can't hum it. I can't – Famous Last Words is the last song on this album. It's a piano ballad. It's a softer ballad. It, it's good. It's okay. Uh, but again, there's not a song that I can sing to you. I can sing Woman in Chains to you. I can sing Bad Man Song. I can sing Advice for the Young at Heart. I can definitely sing Sowing the Seeds of Love, which is the title track of the album and has got to be the thing that we talk about because this, it was almost their next number one single. I think it stalled out at number two in the charts. Um, gosh, a lot of people would argue, and I think they have every right to do so, that it is the greatest Tears for Fears song of all time. It clearly is like the song that the entire album was built around. This is their ultimate tribute to the Beatles, like Pepper era psychedelia, to Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys, Pet Sound, Smile era sound. Mm -hmm. This is one of the most amazing pop productions of the 1980s. Lots of bands were trying to do this kind of thing at the time time nobody did a better job of it than them i want to have 16 separate excerpts of this song on the show because it goes through so many different modes yeah, yeah you've got multiple bridges you've got the layered vocals you've got um really takes the listener on a journey from start to finish that all fits together perfectly uh but there's so many like just beatles grabs in here i, I mean i hear obviously a lot of i am the walrus and there's the trumpet fills like penny lane style there's kind of a longer hey jude-esque uh finale my favorite part of this song is what around three three and a half minutes in you have that very cool sounding organ break uh that precedes that backward drum fill, which sounds amazing. So in the seeds of love. Yep, and then yeah, goes that part. Into, into the time to eat all your words, swallow your pride, open See, that your goes, eyes. That goes to Booker T and the MGs. That's not the Beatles anymore. That's just like 60s soul. Yeah. See, they, they, they're getting everything in there, <laughs> throwing the whole thing in. But it's so good from start to finish. It's one of those, there's so many hooks that, you know, different parts of the song will jump in my mind, uh, you know, at various points. It, there's not like one giant chorus, though there is a giant chorus, but there are so many different angles they play throughout the six and a half minutes or so to uh, to really write a, a nearly you know perfect pop song it's just a great song 
I mean, you know, I'll tell you again. You talk about it's pastiche, it's tribute, but it's also an original composition on its own. There's that moment you talk about your favorite moment, which was the organ solo. Mine is when Kurt Smith comes in singing. He's all over the song, by the way. He sings the chorus. He sings the backing vocals. He, he's actually this is like where you, uh, people have, have joked with me, like like how did he manage to like you know elbow his way into like co-equal representation <laughs> in Tears for Fears, given that Orzabal wrote everything. Why is he on all these albums? He just sings songs. First of all, he plays an incredibly good bass on this record. This is an incredibly hot bass track. But the best part of that song. Is where he does the very John Lennon esque time to eat all your words, swallow your pride, open your eyes. That little bit that carries right back into the verse at the end of the song, you know, where, and then again, where. Orzabal famously sings like every minute of every hour. Yeah. I love a sunflower <laughs> and I believe in love power. How hippie kid you get. It's 1989, but man, every second of it just makes you want to throw up your arms and say like, I'm a nerd and I believe in all this stuff. It's such a perfect song. Nothing about it fails in any way. Uh, when I'm listening to Rush. 
Even Rush loved the Beatles. I just don't Everybody understand. Everybody loves it. the Beatles. All right. Well, so what happens next is, you know, after spending four or five years making their follow-up album to Songs from the Big Chair in the Seeds of Love, well, they, they go on tour. They tour this album. And then, of course, they immediately break up. But do they break up? No, I don't know. Kurt Smith leaves the band. Why? You know, this isn't a band that's obsessively written about the same way that, say, the Stones or the Who or the Beatles are. But uh, apparently it was a combination of, you know, I, I, I want to enjoy like being a jet set and rock star and I'm not really into the group anymore. And also, you know, Roland, you're a bit of a fascist uh, and obsessive compulsively controlling about the creative process. So he left pretty acrimonious breakup. Uh, but Orzabal decided to not give up the Tears for Fears name. Some people will object to this because the next two albums that are released are basically Roland Orzabal sol- solo projects. Uh, those people are wrong because I, I'm going to argue that the next album that comes out, uh, which is the one I told you at the beginning of the show, was was one of my big key inflection points with this band is – one of their two greatest albums of all time. And it is essentially just Roland Orzabal finally doing his own thing. In 1993, Elemental comes out. This is the album that I bought and I wore a groove into because I played it that much. You know, it's one thing to wear a groove into a piece of vinyl. Sure. I wore a groove into a CD. That is something, my friend. This is a fantastic record, and uh, there's like maybe one throwaway instrumental on it, and that's about it. And the only other bad thing I can say about it is, you know, maybe Fish Out of Water, it has a good opening, but it doesn't really deliver on the rest of it. Every other song on this album stuns me, and it makes me think to myself that this is where I think to myself, this is Talk Talk's divergent path. We, I mentioned that at the opening of the show, you know, it's like, you know, what happened? What would happen if, you know, Mark Hollis, instead of going into that weird wilderness that he, he decided to depart onto, uh, had instead diverted back onto a pop path and, and, and worked with the same kind of structures that he had brought to things like um, Color of Spring, like Life's What You Make It or Give It Up or living in another world. Well, what you would get is an album that sounds a lot like Elemental.
where you have those very organic sounds, synth sounds, mm-hmm. but also organic music sounds and very hard rock, but also really, really tight tight songwriting um it begins with elemental the title track and it ends with goodnight song and there's basically nary a bad thing i can say about it in between i love this album i've loved this album since i was 12 years old and one of the reasons why i'm really thrilled to do this episode is to convince people who thought tears for fears ended with like sowing the seeds of love is like no get this album for god's sake you at least need to hear break it down again and goodnight song I'm with you, Jeff. Uh, this is this is probably Elemental was probably the best used CD find I ever had because I didn't. I after sowing the seeds at the time, I I kind of we in Tears for Fears went our different directions. Uh, but then I was in college and I was I, oops, found them and I I just discovered it. It's like all right, I can I can plop down three dollars for this from the first first few notes of Elemental. I said like this is it. This is great. I'm going to love this. This is this. It it felt new. It felt fresh. Uh, it was Tears for Fears, embracing and taking in, uh, modernizing themselves, taking in uh, that the the rise of the the alternative rock scene. So uh, a, a, a a different a different sort of vibe. Uh, and it's like, oh my gosh, uh, yeah. Elemental is great. Uh, break it down again. Uh, Dog's a best friend's dog, kind of a goofy title, but it just starts off with some, with, with a, a good power chord and just keeps on going. Go, go, uh, go, go, choo, 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 choo. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it, it, it sort of doesn't make any sense, but when you're just when you're just bobbing your head around and and, and, and doing and then and doing air guitar to it, like, hey, this is this this works. Power is a nice song, and then we uh, Brian Wilson said is his tribute, and that that was that actually had a little. It took me back to to Seeds of Love because it's a tribute back to the '60s, and I'm sure one of his heroes. Uh, and then we finish with Good Night Song, and it just I can just I can play I can listen to that song anytime, any place. It's just a great album. Uh, I will echo your comments both of your comments. Elemental is so surprisingly good, especially following up what uh, I consider to be the the, the worst album in in their canon. Um, Jeff mentioned Fish Out of Water, which I don't mind, but, you know, it's such an on-the-nose takedown of Kurt Smith, right? Uh, I think Orzabal at some point even said it was his version of How Do You Sleep, the Lennon song to McCartney, and so that uh, it blunts it a little bit, but there's so much good stuff happening here. Those first three, well, first four tracks, uh, Elemental, Cold, then you get the single Break It Down Again, which is really good. You have those synth stabs that kind of replicate uh, the brass instruments uh, to, to sort of hook, break it down again. A very the, pre, the pre-grunge 90s, like before pop 
pop was overthrown by Pearl Jam and Nirvana. Uh, Break It Down Again is like the apex of what that was. Mm. Everything about I, I I played that when I was like driving to take my LSAT <laughs> in 1990 or 99 or 2000 or whatever it was. And God, I just I still like play it every time I need to like work myself up into a fervor sure. and inspire myself. Yeah, I'm gonna break it down again, you mfers. Yes. voice is in very good shape here and break it down again I, I hear it sort of tapping a, a new aspect a little more texture to the voice and, and break it down again the next track I just want to spend a, a moment on which is Mr. Pessimist this is one that sort of drags some elements from the past album from the last album but I think works so much better here you know Roland Orzabal's alone here so at times you do hear I think more, more kind of programmed synths for the rhythms because he's playing almost everything himself on this album Mr. Pessimist has this very slinky, sexy feel. It sort of splits the difference between that that jazzy piano mood he was going for on Seeds of Love and, and sort of a more, um, uh, I say, modern feel to it. It reminds me uh, a little bit of what would come from Greg Dooley and his Twilight Singers band, an offshoot, which is this very kind of dark, sexy, slinky music. Mr. Pessimist is right there uh, in that same ballpark. Was it too bad? Uh, uh, power uh, and 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 Brian Wilson said they even you know he even grabs those uh, those God only knows backing vocals the pa 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 and just sort of lifts them into Brian Wilson said the last song is great but I know Jeff has 
big thoughts on good night songs, so I'll leave that for you. It, but you know, start to finish, there's there's really barely a down moment on Elemental. It's a great album. I mean, I actually leave my thoughts on good night song till the end of the show because I mean, this just uh, it, it's. You know, it is uh, the one song that I never really got to hear when I had my CD copy of it because, as I said, you know, I burned a scratch <laughs> in it and it was all cut off after that. So I only had to come back to it later, back you know when, when YouTube finally came around and I actually I rebought the album. Uh, but yeah, oh God, it's such a great song. I, I think that, that at this point we should probably move on to yeah. First of all, you know, for a band that you know. You know, took you know years and years and years between their albums. This is is practically a breakneck pace. Two years later, there's another Tears for Fears album. It's called Raul and the Kings of Spain. Uh, this is an album whose title is just going to make you hate it from the jump because God, that's a stupid title. I really think it's a lot better than it its reputation it has like i think like one and a half stars on all music it's, it's never got good reviews never got it didn't sell at all and it was basically the end of their career on major labels but i think there's a lot of great music on this i think the title track raul and the kings of spain that's a really fun rocker um but I also think that there's these great, great ballads on it. And the one I particularly want to single out is Sketches of Pain. Sketches of Pain, obviously a play on Miles Davis's Sketches of Spain. Um, Orzabal is Spanish by derivation. He's English. He was born in England. But, of course, his, his, his father's side of the family comes from Spain by way of Argentina. Um, that's a fantastic number that develops through so many different modes. And one of the things you find yourself discovering is that once he was freed from either the strictures of working with Smith or the strictures of having to like care about like, I'm going to hit a number one single is that he just starts like kind of pulling a, an Andy Partridge like of XTC, you know, just like I'm going to write pop music, just like really, really good, fun pop music with lots of great hooks. And so you hear it on Secrets, God's Mistake, Sorry. Uh, you particularly hear it on Sketches of Pain, which is starts with this very Spanish guitar opening and then turns into this luxurious pop song that uh, nobody knows, but people should hear. Stretches of canvas signed by a godless name. Strange, bright colors of madness, only a fool would frame. Sketches of pain. Sketches of pain. Sketches of pain. Some crashing, we tore them apart. We failed to imagine God might claim. This, uh, 
I think it's good. I, there's nothing that really stands out to me as being incredibly memorable, but it's not nothing embarrassing on here either. It might be, as I wrote down here, it might be their, their most straight-ahead you know, rock album. It has a very earthy feel to the production. There are a lot of you know real drums, real guitars, real instruments, less... Um, I'll say reliance, but less less use of some of the sequencers and things like that on, on past albums. So it does have that, you know, going for it. Um, I like Me and My Big Ideas, which again is one of the slower songs on the album. It works really well uh, with uh, Alita J- Adams singing some tinkling piano, this very slow, deliberate melody. It's a Falling Down, the second track on the album, is very similar to uh, the title track, which which kicked things off for up-tempo, and uh, Roland sort of howling the chorus in places. And Secrets is uh, one of the more romantic songs with, uh, you know, at least lyrics that are that are comprehensible uh, from from uh, Orzabal. And it's kind of a pretty piano ballad. So some of, the, some of the lighter moments, I think, as Jeff mentioned, are some of the strong moments on Raul and the Kings of Spain. Again, n- nothing terrible, nothing embarrassing. I'm not sure there are many, like, just big highlights for me, and I don't remember it all that often. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, the, 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 the thing, the first and only single, maybe, on that was God's Mistake. I remember hearing that on the radio. That's one of my least the- favorite songs on the album. It's got, a, it's got a nice hook and stuff, even though I was, I mean, even at the time, I was saying, like, is Tears for Fear is going all Nietzsche on me, but uh, <laughs> but Raul and the Kings of Spain. Well, God's like, mistake is love, but but making us I know, love. Love is God's another. mistake. I mean, that's bad. at the time when I didn't know any better about Nietzsche. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, it starts off pretty strong. Uh, Secrets is is nice, and I actually when I'm listening it closely, I'm going, it's a power ballad because he just comes out with these guitars and plays a a really strong solo that. Really, when it came out in 1995, it probably didn't fit the scene, but he just wanted to make the music he wanted. So, uh, I there's some nice there's some nice songs on there uh, that I'll go, but I this is an album I don't really go back to often. Well, everybody loves a happy ending to a story, right? And one of the least expected and surprising happy endings is the ending for tears for fears because well you know it's 2004 when their final album comes out and you know for all we know maybe there will be another one someday we don't know it's 20 2020 right now and uh you know it it would be a, a real shame if you held your breath you will turn blue and then die um but uh kurt smith and roland orzabal patched up their differences got back together, put out an album. That album is indeed called Everybody Loves a Happy Ending. And I'm so glad that 
at the end of these shows, we always talk about an artist's late era discography, and it's always sad. It's always like, well, you know, there are some good moments. There are some good songs on this, but, you know, let's just gloss over this. You know, let's let's be graceful about it and not talk about how lesser this is compared <laughs> to their the remaining work. Shocker. The enormous flipping shocker of the Tears for Fears career arc is that Everybody Loves a Happy Ending is a fantastic album. And it is, I think Scott was telling me earlier today, is like, I might have to put this in my top two at the end of the show. And I, I'm not going to do that myself, but I completely understand why he would, because where did this come from? Wake up, your time is near. No more the supernova No action guaranteed to my mind if i'm going to answer the question that i just asked where did it come from i there is a continuum here in my mind from a lot of the pop moves that that orzabal was doing on raul and the kings of spain uh, there's a it's it's just well written music with like good hooks but I just think this comes off so well, so much better. And I have to say, Smith, uh, his voice is so welcomed back into the fold. Mm-hmm. It adds so much to it. And his bass playing, again, you know, he, he was really good at what he did. And uh, this is uh, a shocker. It's one of those things where you're just glad to say, like, well, the end of their career wasn't like, with this depressing reunion album <laughs> that we're going to pretend doesn't exist. This is a fantastic record. It is so good. Like, knock you off your chair. Good. Uh, unexpectedly great. Um, and, and this is, you know, if you're a Tears for Fears fan, and you, again, just sort of say, whatever, it's been 12 years and it can't be that good. It is that good. You should check it out. If you're just a music fan, you should check it out. These are, if you, uh, you know, the touch, uh, the touch point here is probably sowing the seeds of love, the, the song itself kind of take that extrapolate it out to maybe a full album with the other uh, uh sort of uh, elements that you'll find in tears for fears intricately arranged as orzabal normally does well executed pop music with some big hooks sweet melodies uh t- you know two singers once again sort of working with each other and it turns out so well that the title track is is first everybody loves a happy ending very clearly like this beatles elo sort of match mashup uh, almost like a multi-part suite, uh, like a Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey, two two kind of different songs plugged together. It works. It works. Closest Dude, thing to you cannot deny the hooks on that song. Yeah. It just like it grabs you by the lapels and says, "Listen to me." Closest thing to heaven brings back the the backward guitar, the the drum backward drum fills that we heard earlier. 
And I think one of the finest, the finest songs in Tears for Fears career is here in Call Me Mellow. What a fantastic song. The verses remind me of a really nice XTC song. The chorus is is, uh, is very close to There She Goes from The Laws. Uh, lyrically, it's about uh, getting older, as they were at this point. But great harmonies, just a wonderful track. If only I was half my age and she was older, we'd live on ice cream on Coney Island. And I think the second half of the album holds up really well, too. Uh, Who Killed Tangerine is, is again, very Beatles-y. These spooky verses and a a brighter chorus. Secret World brings in Paul Buckmaster and a 35-piece orchestra. And it sounds great. You hear a little Burt Bacharach quality in the writing here. That's not on the album, in my opinion. Secret World is really good. Excellent. And then Pull It On A Cloud, I think it's the last song on the album, sounds like a, like, a, like an acoustic McCartney tune, like almost a Blackbird sort of track uh, to, to close the album. This is really, really excellent. And again, if you kind of gave up on Tears for Fears after maybe Elemental, go. It's tough to find. It's not on the streaming services, but it's well worth tracking down. This is uh, uh, very well could end up in my top two albums from Tears for Fears in just a moment. For me, listening to this one is it was very much like they 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 took sowing the seeds of love the song and just pushed and turned it into an album, but also doing it in a very cohesive. I mean, they edited and saw and wrote the songs tightly. Uh, I, I I'm just looking at the 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 links. I mean, they're some of these other albums they'll go six and a half seven minutes and uh, the the longest song here is like is five and a half minutes. So they got, they got a lot tighter. Uh, I think they were more, they're definitely uh, growing up or getting older and taking uh, maturing in a way, even though they've probably been pretty, they've been doing this for like 20 years. And so you hear that, you hear that confidence in there and yeah, call me mellow is a, is a, is a nice song. 
there's there's a lot of nice songs that in this one and it's one of those albums that I'm still trying I got to listen to it a, a number more times cuz I know Roland's going to Roland stuck a bunch of stuff little bits and pieces in there so I'm going <laughs> to get my headphones on and 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 uh and, and walk the dog and, and and spend about an hour and just just really Paying attention to some of the the little little quirks he's gonna he you know he threw in so ah uh, Sean you've gone to metal on us man because this stuff is immediately appealing to me last days on earth the the, the final song on the album well I mean, you pulling a cloud is a bonus track that was the one that Scott referred to but like the last days on earth is is the final song on the actual record um, it, it starts as this disco piece it's straight up seventies disco and I'm like well. Tears for Fears doing disco. Okay, I'm I'm just gonna go along for the ride and see what happens. Uh, and then, of course, halfway through, it just turns into this majestic ballad. Reminds me of everything that was wonderful about their songwriting capabilities. These guys were just young, you know, you know, nobodies from the middle of nowhere in England, uh, you know, school chums who everybody, you know, when they when they finally got prominent, hated for being, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, jumped up, uh, whiny, uh, whingy bastards complaining about you know, their families <laughs> and complaining about how hard it is to be a kid and to mature into this at the end of their career uh, is just a wonderful surprise. And this is this is the record that I did not know until you know, I came back to do the show because I've been familiar with all the earlier ones. Um, and it, it, again, it, the title is just perfect. It's like they knew. Yep. It's like, yeah, you know, uh, this is the happy ending. Uh, there's so many shows where we have to say, like, yeah, you know, all that early stuff is great. Ignore the later stuff. Check out Everybody Loves a Happy Ending because it is a wonderful landing, a graceful landing for this band. Yeah, as far as we can tell, likely the last piece of music, last album from Tears for Fears. So that's where this episode ends. The political beats look at Tears for Fears. Our guest, Sean Hackmarth, is a writer and editor at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. We come to the part of the episode where we all give you the two albums you should own and the five songs you must hear from our featured artist. We turn it over to our guest first. Sean Hackmarth, your two albums and five songs, please. Two albums. 
Obviously, for me, it's going to be Songs from the Big Chair. It, it defines a decade. Uh, my other album is going to be Elemental. I think it, it is uh, another, it's probably my second most played album I, from Tears for Fears. I just love it. It's great, full out of hooks, and just, just really good. Uh, five key tracks. Uh, let's go with uh, Break It Down Again off Elemental. Uh, then we're going to go three, the three hits from Songs from the Big Chair. Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Amazing song. Shout. Head Over Heels. And my other one is a, is a remix of a B-side. Johnny Panic and the Bible of Dreams. The Fluke Remix. Uh, you can find it on various streaming services. It's, uh, let's see, it's Sowing the Seeds of Love is somebody wrapped in. And it works. High time, we made a stand And shook up the beams of the common man And the love train Ride from coast to coast DJ's the man we love the most Could you be, could you be squeaky clean And smash any hope of democracy As the headline says you're free to choose There's egg on your face and mud on your shoes One of these days they're gonna call it the blues Always, when you can find a remix of a B-side and have it in these top five songs, you, you have to do it. You have to. Uh, my two albums, uh, Songs from the Big Chair, and I'm going to do it because it's it deserves it. it, it everybody Loves a Happy Ending is is absolutely uh, well worth a listen, and I, I think one of the two albums that you really, really should hear from Tears for Fears. Uh, the songs from the first album, I spread these out across the career pretty well. Uh, Pale Shelter from, from the first album. I think the best song on 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 the hurting. Everybody wants to rule the world from songs from the big chair. Uh, Sowing the seeds of love from seeds of love, of course. Uh, again, I think right there, two of the best songs in the entire decade. So yeah, you should hear them if just somehow you haven't. Mister Pessimist from uh, Elemental, really good. And then uh, I, I just talked a lot about Call Me Mellow from Everybody Loves a Happy Ending. Uh, I think it's one of their the best songs of their career. You should absolutely hear it. Call Me Mellow. Jeff. Well, I'm going to have to agree with Sean and say that my two favorite albums are obviously going to be songs from the big chair. I'm gone. It's their number one hit. It's it's amazing. It's epical. And then Elemental, I think, of course. These are the two ones, of course, that had the, the greatest effect on me as a child. So perhaps I have a certain partisan attachment to them. As for my five favorite songs, this is so hard to do because Tears for Fears is a band that on an album level maybe wasn't always consistent, but they had all of these just truly titanic moments yeah. that you remember. So like... I'm not including Mad World on this list. I'm not including Everybody Wants to Rule the World on this list. And I feel guilty about that. Uh, but it, it's a shout for that matter. But these, I'm just, I got to go with what I want to go with. So the first one is going to be obviously Head Over Heels. I've already talked very long and very thoroughly about how 
important that song was to my childhood development. Sowing the seeds of love. Again, as Scott said, this is every this is pulls out all of the Beatlesque, Brian Wilson-esque stops. This is the greatest uh, ever tribute to the 60s done by the 80s. Uh, I'm going to, as a third one, Yeah, I, I like the fact that Sean identified uh, an obscure B-side. I'm going to uh, identify a semi-obscure one as well. It's Tears Roll Down. Um, laid so low, Tears Roll Down. It's the remake of the B-side. It's the B-side originally from the Seeds of Love album, but this is the uh, remake version that went on to their greatest hits in 1992. Fantastic song. Uh, I love that last chorus where it's like, not a chance mutation or the last temptation laid so low for so long. And again, you know, again, intense gloom, <laughs> which is the Tears for Fears trademark. Yes. Um, fantastic piece of music. Uh, fourth would be Break It Down Again. Uh, again, if you want to hype yourself up, if you want to give yourself some hope in your life, no matter where you are, no matter how low you feel, you, you listen to Break It Down Again and you can go ram through walls. Uh, and then the final one I'll say is Good Night Song, which is the concluding uh, track on Elemental. And I, I, I love this song so much because I think it, it, it's such a wonderful valediction. Uh, it, it, it could have been the final song of their career in a way. And in fact, back in 1993, when I heard it, I thought it might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, there's that, that, that fantastic final couple of words. I should have stayed around to break the ice. I thought about it once or twice, but nothing ever changes unless there's some pain. And then our good night song is played so wrong. You can blame the crowd because they scream so loud, so long. It's a kind of an, a song that coils endlessly unto itself and uh, is one of those things that proves that Tears for Fears, long after you yourself personally might have stopped paying attention to them, were still making incredible music. This is a band that never got credit really for being as good as they were because they were defined by their biggest hit singles but there's so much more to them than you might have realized i should have stayed around to break the ice i thought about it once or twice but nothing ever changes unless there's some pain and There's the Political Beach look at Tears for Fears. We thank our guest, Sean Hackbarth, longtime blogger, currently writer and editor at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Find him on Twitter, at Sean Hackbarth. Also a Rush fan, and his thoughts made it into our Rush episode as well. Sean, thanks so much for joining us here on Political Beats. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Uh, Jeff, at Esoteric CD on Twitter. We have something, uh, as far as I know, something kind of special lined up for the next episode. 
Poke Mahone. There we go. At Esoteric CD on Twitter. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. Please subscribe to our feed. You'll get new episodes right to you. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or you can go to nationalreview.com to find also the little intro we write for each episode on the website. Listen, share, enjoy, and please leave reviews. You can also find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.